Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week's film is Operation Varsity Blues, The College Admissions Scandal. I'm joined by John Carmen, the film's editor, writer, and producer, and Chris Smith, the film's director and producer. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire film and then listen on. You've probably heard a lot about the 2019 college admission scandal, but you haven't heard everything. Operation Varsity Blues goes beyond the celebrity-driven headlines with real conversations from FBI wiretaps. The film offers a rare glimpse of the man at the center of the scandal, Rick Singer, and the methods he used to help his wealthy clients cheat a system already designed to benefit the privileged. All of our friends are only talking about one thing, and it's this story. An FBI investigation called Operation Varsity Blues. USC... UCLA and Rick Singer. The mastermind behind the entire operation. Is there any risk that this thing blows up in my face? Hey, Rick. Hey there. Is this a good time? Yeah, yeah, it's good for me. Rick, I had a question for you. It's just you and me. Is that kosher? Absolutely. I just wanted you to walk me through the whole thing again and how it works. We help the wealthiest families in the U.S. get their kids into school. So I've done 761, what I would call side doors. The front door means getting in on your own. So I've created this kind of side door in because my families want a guarantee. John Carmen, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks for having me. Now, the college admissions scandal story has everything. It has celebrities. It has uh, rich people. It has, uh, you know, the sort of busting of the American myth of being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm curious which element of, of those or something else, what attracted you to this story? Well, this story kind of broke right after we finished the Fire Festival documentary. And that you know, was very, we were, so we were very much in the headspace of, you know, scams and scandals and, you know, American capitalism run amok and grifters, all that stuff. And, um, you know, so when this broke and we did some reading into it, I mean, aside from it being like a thrilling crime story, it just seemed to be kind of like emblematic of a 
widespread systemic issue at like the heart of higher education. So it, yeah, it just, it just seemed to be very rich and, you know, but of course it wasn't until we fully dove deep into the court documents that we really understood, you know, how deep it really went. Did you know when you were starting to make this film that you were going to get these FBI tapes that you were going to be able to use to recreate the exact dialogue of phone calls between Rick Singer and the parents? Well, to be clear, the tapes have never actually been released publicly, but the transcripts were. And that was, yeah, just completely public access. Anyone, you know, with Internet account can just download them for free. Uh, That was basically the FBI's initial affidavit um so it wasn't until you know i I really you know again we saw the headlines i was like oh this is very interesting and then but then it wasn't until (laughs) we actually read that initial 200 page affidavit that we realized how rich it all was yeah i imagine you had lots of transcripts to look at how did you decide which conversations to include in the film well i guess it's there was like two factors you know one is just like oh this this is a great way to learn about the case because again they you know singer was so brazen on some of these calls he would just lay everything out step by step in detail and in a lot of ways that's more compelling and interesting to hear it straight from him as opposed to uh just like a talking head interview so that was one fact and then another factor that played into it was you know just looking for any kind of interesting uh tension or emotion something that was coming through on the, you know these were these were essentially business calls but there you could tell that with certain parents they were worried about what would happen if you know the public found out or if their kid found out or you know some were uh, maybe a little too cavalier about you know or or nonchalant about the whole thing so we were kind of looking for either moments that were very revealing as far as uh, just pure information of how this worked, but also things that perhaps have like, a you know, an additional emotional resonance in some way. I was really interested in, in the choice of, of which parents you decided to put in the film. Uh, Bill McGlashan, Augustin Huneus, the winemaker. How did you choose, you know, which cases to look at? Because there are a lot and you didn't pick the famous people, which I found very interesting. Mainly it was, it was, oh, this is an interesting character in some way. Again, like Bill, you know, Bill McGlashan seems to be kind of amused by this whole thing or, you know, mm-hmm. and Augustine seems very you know nervous that this thing is going to blow up in his face, you know, and, uh, you know, others are, are terrified or, you know, it, we just were, we were just looking for people that, uh, you know, in the transcripts, like their personalities or their feelings on this whole thing seem to come through Whereas a lot of others, uh, you know, including like, you know, some of the more famous people, which we, we did, we did not choose uh, to cast as, you know, actors in the thing. They it, it was a lot. Of, a lot of these conversations were just very dry and straightforward and, you know, yes, no answers. And we were looking for the ones where it seemed to go a step beyond that. And it, and it seemed like there was some kind of, you know, tension or, or maybe a a, a, a strange joke here and there. There's just something that kind of elevates it beyond just pure exposition. So a central character in the film is John Vandemore. And 
that's a more complicated story because there are questions as to whether or not he really was involved in the you know taking of bribes in exchange for letting kids into Stanford. It seems he seems pretty clear that he didn't. He got the donations, but he did not help the young woman in question get into school and simply pass the check along to his bosses. And yet, you know, the connection that you can draw is there. Tell me what you think of John. And I'd love to hear why you decided to include his story in the film. So when the scandal first broke, I, I, I think people just kind of assumed that it was simply, you know, rich and corrupt people that were taking part in Singer's scheme. But I, I, we found John's situation to be really interesting, you know, because it adds a lot of complexity to that narrative. And, you know, like this was a guy who dedicated his life to Stanford sailing. And, you know, yet he was like struggling to raise funds for his program. And, you know, and then along comes you know, Rick Singer, who's like this friendly guy with deep pockets. And, you know, so I kind of see him as this uh, tragic figure that kind of adds just a lot of moral ambiguity. Rick really was pushing me hard to really take a look at the student. You know, he was really interested and knew that I really wanted a second assistant coach and I was struggling to, to fundraise for that position. And he said, hey, I would like through my foundation, I would like to donate um, $110,000 to the program that to get you through, uh, you know, a year or two of funding that position. It's like, you know, no strings attached. Um, I just want to continue our relationship and keep, you know, bringing people to you and have you take a look at them. I said, great. Uh, that's fantastic. You know, he did, though no students like actually were accepted because of something John did, because there was a, uh, quid pro quo between him and Singer of, you know, I'm going to bring you prospective candidates uh, and, you, and you're going to consider them in return for donations to your program. And so that is a that's a quid pro quo. And as you know, John's lawyer explains, you know, that that's all the government kind of needs to prove that, you know, you have entered a conspiracy. So it wasn't always as, you know, as black and white as just like, yes, like you, you pay me off and I'll do whatever you want. You know, like John's situation was a lot more complicated than that. I'm wondering, you know, the pandemic has really changed the landscape of what going to college means. And in my own house, it has degraded the, the brand name college. My son went to a brand name college as a freshman and, and moved home for the pandemic and was doing it remote for a while and was like, this is dumb. It's too expensive to be doing it remote. So he transferred to a state school and is happier. Um, so we kind of get that. Uh, but also, I think the pandemic is opening so many students and parents' eyes right now. Is that something that you thought about when you were making this film during the pandemic? Yeah, it was definitely strange because the bulk of our interviews were conducted pre-pandemic. So, yeah, it's it's it, the world just kind of shifted very quickly, and it's too. I think it's too soon to to know, you know, because who knows? I mean, maybe things will be, you know, with with the vaccine being promised in May, you know, maybe things will just kind of go back to how they always were sooner than we think, but. Uh, I think that there has been like the pandemic has certainly had effects, you know, like they on the SAT like that. I believe that has been uh, suspended for the time being because it's not safe to, you know, bring students into a testing center. And, you know, and also a lot of colleges just announced that they're uh, going test optional during their admissions process. So I think it's too early to really know. But I think that what you said about, uh, you know, your your own kid being happier 
at a state school. I think that kind of speaks to, you know, what uh, some of our experts say in the film that, you know, it's there's there's so many opportunities to get a good education outside of these elite schools. Like you can get a good education almost anywhere in the country. There's like over 3000 schools, stuff like that. So um, I, I think uh, pan- pandemic or not, I, you know, I hope the film can kind of just show that, you, you know, you don't have to buy in to the hype of these schools. You know what I think about are the coaches or other college officials who said no, and then he had to find somebody else. And then that person knew (laughs) ostensibly that like this could be going on at their school. You know what I mean? Do you ever think about the people who just like rejected the scam altogether and the fact that they didn't come forward? Well, I think in in the case of, you know, John Vandermore, I think it shows that it wasn't I don't think he just walked up and was like, hey, I want to do this illegal scheme. Would you like to join me? I think it was <laughs> uh, it was a kind of a slow and steady process. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, it, w- one of our interviews was talking about uh, how he, you know, was very patient and took his time and, you know, nurtured the process. And I, I think that's how he got these people kind of comfortable. He, w- he, was, a, he was a charmer in that sense. Uh, so mm. even if you know, he got to that point with someone uh, who decided not to go down that path with him. I think they they probably formed such a good relationship by that point that they probably thought, like, that's a little odd as opposed to, you know, this is uh, fully criminal. I just, nothing that I found, or there was no transcript I saw, at least with the coach, where he was like, you know, we're we're going to do this crime, at least in, b- before he became a cooperator. Then he started changing his language and becoming much more obvious to indict people. But um, yeah, I just, I just don't think that's the way he operated. I don't think he, I think he was very subtle uh, with the sort of uh, introducing the criminal element into these relationships. How many shoes are left to drop in this case? Because he's still cooperating with the FBI, right? Right. Well, there's still some uh, parents that have pleaded not guilty. So until those cases are settled or finished, you know, then he's going to be, I believe, I believe they just, they just kind of keep, they're going to keep him out of prison. So in case he needs to be called as a witness or something like that. Um, So yeah, I mean, as you can see at the end of the film, I mean, that, that those are just the people featured in our film. There's other cases beyond that. And um, you know, this, I think there are, many shoes left to drop in this and this this could potentially could go on for years before singer is actually sentenced what are you hoping people will take away from the film that they didn't come in with what do you think is the biggest thing that they will learn it's tough to pin it down to one thing because i think it's concerning the, the film we're, we're i think we're touching on a lot of different issues you know not just in the education system but, you know, just American society at large. And, you know, I think we touch on wealth inequality and, and class and uh, privilege, all these things that uh, it's, it's just so complicated. So it's, it's, it's ultimately what I hope is that the film sparks a conversation with people and we can kind of question why things are the way they are. Absolutely. One of the final moments in the film includes you reaching out to Stanford and their statement is that the university denies the athletic director knew of Rick or any improper gifts made through his foundation. They continue to deny that any amount of money can have an influence on admissions. What is your reaction to that statement? 
I can't speak for uh, what things are like at Stanford, but you know, several uh, people who you know I've spoke to, like experts or just people that work in the college admissions industry, tell me that if you make a large donation, it exponentially increases your kid's chance of getting in. Uh, that's st- that kind of thing is still going on to this day, according to the experts that I've spoken to, that, and that this scandal has not really uh, changed that. I want to talk about the test taking. To me, that is one of the most extraordinary parts of this scandal. It's one thing to write a check. It's another thing to have a person fill in answers on behalf of a student. What did you think of the test taking component of this scam? What What I found to be most heartbreaking is that in a lot of these cases, these kids seem to have no idea what their parents had done. So they're just seeing these high scores. And, the, you know, I mean, that must have been such a, an amazing feeling to think that you got such a great score on this test, this really hard test. And, and then to find out later that it was all a lie, you know, that's that's just I just think it's in some ways it's like the most sad and simple of of the of the scheme. Like just that just must have been <laughs> really awful, you know, to to just to think that you got this amazing score and, and you didn't. Singer has that quote where he's like, you know, he's saying like, oh, she'll probably come out of the test and she'll be like, dad, it was so hard, you know, and it's just like, oh my God, like it's just so, it's, it's really heartbreaking that, you know, that these kids were taking these tests and trying their best and they were robbed of knowing what the truth was and, and until much later when the scandal erupted. Were you tempted, as I was, to try taking the SAT or ACT after hearing that Mark, uh, the guy who actually did that, was either a genius or maybe just any adult can do well in a test designed for an 11th grader? Well, as Akil says in the film, he, he, he says anyone, any adult worth their salt in the test prep industry. <laughs> OK, OK. OK, so I don't want I hope I don't want to <laughs> spread the idea that just anyone can do uh, great on, on those, those tests. I'm, I mean, like. I took them forever ago. I remember it being hard, you know, but um, <laughs> I don't see that as like a fun afternoon of just taking uh, SAT <laughs> prep questions if you don't have to. Absolutely. All right. Well, the film is Operation Varsity Blues. John, Carmen, thank you so much for talking to me about it. I really, really enjoyed the film. My pleasure. I'm, I'm so glad you liked it. Now, here's my interview with the film's director and producer, Chris Smith. Chris, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hello. Now, I remember where I was when I heard about this story for the first time. I don't know if everybody feels that way about this story, but I remember being at work. I remember hearing the story breaking in the news and just thinking, like, rich people, man. <laughs> Is that what you first thought when you heard about this story? Um, I mean, it's hard. it's hard to remember. I think I was overseas when it happened, so I don't think that I had, like, the reaction that everyone else had. Do you think it would have been such a big story had celebrities not been involved in the scam? Probably not. Yeah, I agree. Although it does sort of point to the American myth of, you know, bootstraps. If you just work hard enough, you can go to whatever college you want. I mean, that really is another compelling thread here, right? I think that's probably the number one reason it resonated with people was just, you know, it really... I think people hold the institution of education as being somewhat um, sacred. And the idea that, you know, that somebody had figured out a way to game that system was, I think, 
deeply upsetting to a lot of people. Absolutely. As somebody with kids in college, it was deeply upsetting to me. I'll admit that. Now, this is a really interesting documentary because you are using real FBI transcripts and the reenactments have Matthew Modine in them (laughs) uh, playing singer. And it's really interesting. Talk about that decision to do reenactments with the transcripts and also to cast a known actor in that role. Um, I think, you know, for us, in terms of looking at any project, you look at how can you tell the story in the best way possible? And I think in this case, you know, we didn't have access to Rick Singer. We didn't have access to the parents. Yet these transcripts existed and they allowed a window into that world that, you know, we wouldn't have otherwise. And so it, it became a pretty obvious um, path in terms of trying to give, you know, an audience a better understanding of what happened. Is it hard when a story is out there and everyone thinks they know everything about it to do something new with it? I'd love to hear that your answer to that and also to hear what you think is new. Like, what didn't I know before I watched this that I, I know now that I have watched it? Yeah, I think, you know, if anything on a story that's really well covered, it, it, it actually becomes an opportunity to try to tell a different side to the story because there's usually so much more than you read in, in the headlines. And I think also, in, a, in the world that we're in today, a lot of people are only reading headlines, so they think that they know a story, yet there might be a lot more there than they had originally understood. And so I think part of our job is to take something that might be actually quite complex and sort of distill it into you know, a movie that could be you know, consumed in a way that is easy to understand and follow. Was it intentional that you didn't really focus much on the Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman uh, stories because they had been out there so publicly? I mean, you really introduced me to people I hadn't heard of before the scandal. I, I think that, you know, again, when you said people knew this story, um, I think that people really knew the Lori and Felicity side to the story. And so for us, the opportunity was to try to tell the other stories in and around um, what unfolded. And so uh, that was part of it. And then the other part was just, you know, when we looked at what transcripts we had to work with and what phone calls were recorded, you know, there was a lot to work through. But the ones that were the strongest or had the most to offer, you know, ultimately weren't between Laurie and and Felicity. I want to talk about John Vandemore. Um, He's the Stanford sailing coach, and his situation is really complicated. He got caught up in the scandal because he did receive donations, but then he turned around and handed those donations over to Stanford, and, you know, he thought he was doing the due diligence of a coach there. And he comes off really empathetically in the film, yet he was charged and is facing consequences. Talk about how you feel about his involvement in this and and him as a character in your documentary. The one thing with... um... John Vandermore, it felt like after meeting him and sort of hearing his story is he definitely felt like somebody that would not have in, gotten involved in some illicit activity if he had not been sort of coached or prompted through his uh, meeting of Rick Singer. So, you know, it was interesting to hear, you know, I think he just wanted a simple life. He wanted to be a sailing coach and all of a sudden he's put into a position where he's supposed to be fundraising, which is not, you know, necessarily something that that he was maybe wasn't like fully in his skill set in terms of things that he was, you know, excelling at. And so I think somebody like Rick could prey upon somebody in that situation because it's, you know, he's offering them a solution to something that they don't want to have to do in the first place. Uh, One scene that stood out to me in the film, a thing that I hadn't heard about Rick Singer before, is that he had previously auditioned for a reality show. My name is Rick Singer. 
My job is to life coach kids and families through the whole process of getting into college. We have families in Champaign and Miami and they send their plane to come pick me up, come to the meeting for a couple hours, two, three hours, put me right back on the plane, send me to the next place I need to go. It's amazing. What was up with that? What show was he auditioning for? It was a show that never actually went to air, but they were sort of like exploring the world of uh, independent educational consultants. And um, just in the mix of people that they were considering, Rick came in and, and they had taped him. Hmm. One of the things that's really interesting about how all this shook out was that Rick Singer ended up cooperating with the FBI. Usually these kinds of flips go from the bottom up. And it's curious to me that Rick Singer himself ended up being a major witness for all these people kind of on the other side of the transaction. What do you think about that? I mean, it's hard to know. One of the things in this story was just not having access to Rick made it very difficult to understand, you know, his thoughts and motivations throughout the whole process. So, um, you know, I think when faced with a situation like this, I think a lot of people will look at their options and sort of make a decision. And I think Rick had proven himself to be very uh, recognized opportunities in his life and was able to capitalize on those, whether it was, you know, from being a coach to seeing the opportunity of creating this side door. I think in a similar fashion, uh, I think somebody mentioned in the movie that he seized on uh, an opportunity to work with, with the feds. It was interesting to me because we know that these are the real conversations because of the wiretaps that we heard some parents kind of pushing back on this, uh, kind of casting doubt on whether or not this was legal, whether they were going to get caught. And one of them even says at one point, like, I can't be in the headlines. This can't be a news story. And I'm thinking like, well, it's going to be. Were you surprised that so many parents uh, did it anyway, even though they obviously seem smart enough to know that it wasn't an okay thing to be doing? I mean, I think every case was different. You know, I think in looking at the conversations that people had, it felt like every situation was unique. You had different people worked with Rick only in the capacity of adjusting test scores and other people actually worked with the side door, which was, you know, getting people in through athletics. So I I don't think that it it was one size fits all. And I think the motivations, you have no idea what they would be, what people were thinking. Was it, you know, that they wanted to make sure that it looked uh, good that their kids got into a great school? Did they really, um, you know, want to give their kids the best opportunity that they could give them? Um, were they, you know, just seeing, you know, one of the reasons that we kept, that we put the YouTube clips in, um, of, of kids that were either applying to school or going through that process was just that you could see the actual, uh, how that experience was affecting them. And sort of, I think anyone seeing their kids going through that, that process would want to try to help. And so I think that was an effort to sort of, to show, you know, another side to the story. What do you think about the commodification of, of college? Is that something that you've thought about before you started making this story? Um, I think it's something that's in the background that many people think about. I think here um, we we talk to a lot of experts in the education space and journalists. And one of the things that, you know, was a, a consistent theme was just that, you know, you can get a great education anywhere. And, um, you know, if, if you're motivated and, and that's what you're looking for. And so you know, we would hope that people would take away from this and maybe to take some of that pressure off and realize that if it's really about getting an education, that that's an opportunity you can have at a lot of schools. I think one of the things that is also highlighted in the movie is just, you know, I think for many, 
it's either bragging rights or or it's just looking at, at at the education system as a sort of a networking opportunity that like by going to a more prestigious school that you're going to be mingling with the right people that um, ultimately will be making decisions in the world and that 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 in and of itself is an advantage and and that's something that's afforded to you know people that have have the means now I'm curious uh, aside from college being a commodity and that you can get a good education anywhere is there something else you're hoping that people will take away from this film after watching it well I think you know we've seen over the last couple of years and um, you know that people are sort of calling into question things that we've always uh, accepted as being just the way things are and and I think education is another thing that sort of is ripe for you know analysis in that way and so you hope that you know, that this story ends up being another just small part of that greater dialogue that's happening around the space of education. You know, I think, you know, it definitely calls into question this idea of like, you know, is America a meritocracy and is it all based on, you know, if you work hard, you know, you will be rewarded. Um, I think this is a very isolated case. You know, I think Rick was an anomaly. Um, I don't think that there's necessarily a ton of Rick singers out there. And I think if they are, their client base is probably shrinking just based on, uh, you know, this story coming out, um, not the film, but the story in general. Um, so if nothing else, it's just something that adds to the dialogue. And, and that's all you can hope to do when you're, you know, working on projects like these. Well, Chris, I know that it was a challenge making this film, but I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Great. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Chris Smith and John Carmen. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.